I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 45 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Kristen Goodenson. Kristen is a manager with the detection and response team at Google, where he has been for the last six and a half years. Kristen joined Google in 2011 as part of the incident response team investigating and responding to security incidents before making the move to management, where he now oversees the digital forensic and incident management teams in the Sunnyvale, California office. Prior to his management adventures, Kristen was known to dabble in coding, focusing on tools like log to timeline and Plaso. In his previous life, Kristen worked as an incident response and forensics consultant in Iceland. Kristen holds a master's of science degree in the Telecom and Management School from Paris and a bachelor's in computer and electronic engineering from the University of Iceland. In this episode, we discuss moving to the U.S. to do DFIR for Google, his start in system admin and how forensics became his calling, the development of log to timeline and Plaso, the DFI community support he receives, automating as much as you can, moving to management, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. All right, Kristen, thanks for joining me in Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I'm good, and you? Doing great. So uh, we're sitting in your beautiful home here in Palo Alto, but you're not originally from Palo Alto, right? You're from another part of the world. Yeah. Yeah, So how did you end up here? Um, So I I, I come from Iceland, and uh, after developing Log Timeline for about two years, I was starting to do a lot of traveling, uh, talking in conferences, stuff like that. Um, and I met Darren, who was a Googler, or oh, still a Googler. Um, and then when they were looking for hiring people into their team, he reached out to me and asked, hey, you want to join? And, and it's Google, so why not? So I interviewed, and, and surprisingly, they just offered me a job. Yeah, is, is, is the Google interviews as crazy as everybody says they are? <sighs> They're pretty intense, yeah. Pretty intense, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, to take their time. Yeah. So prior to that, though, what, were you doing other types of forensic work and IR? So yeah, um, prior to that, I mean, I started out um, doing more generic security, um, you know, the sysadmin and, and security consulting and, and security hardening and everything like that, um, jack of all trades, uh, and got pulled into an IR engagement because I was the security guy, uh, which kind of led to trying to tack on more and more uh, IR engagements. So I had been doing um, more or less almost only forensics and IR for probably about two years before I got hired into Google. Okay. And what drew you to sticking with forensics as opposed to going back to maybe other areas of security or infosec? Um, I mean, I was always very uh, fascinated by you know the puzzle and solving the puzzle and going deep and, and really understanding what was happening, which is what drew me originally to security to begin with. Um, and and I was always trying to find you know which niche of security I wanted to stick with. And I think as soon as I hit and saw forensics and I tried forensics for the first time, I knew that this was kind of this is kind of it. This was the puzzle that I was looking for, the way to dig really deep down and understand what was really happening and, and tell the story. Yeah. So I think it was no going back after I 
did my first forensic engagement. Yeah, that's how. That's why I felt when I when I started with it. Once <clears throat> once I did my first engagement, I'm like, this is this was my calling. Yeah, yeah. Kind of get pulled into it. Yeah. <laughs> and and part of that though, certainly too, and and you know how I've kind of gotten to follow you too is there's, there's obviously a big forensic community online, and I know, gosh, it was it's got to be coming up almost ten years ago that you started doing some of the work on log to timeline. How did that kind of come about, and where did you know that? portion of your life kind of uh, get dedicated. Um, yeah. So uh, as I back, back in the, my old company, um, we were kind of strapped for budget. Um, I was doing, we were like a hosting company, which we were all about, um, you know, selling your hours and, and doing consulting and not really doing any, any extra work. Um, and, and we didn't really have any budget to buy anything. So I couldn't go ahead and just buy software. Um, so I was kind of limited with, what was open source and what was available, and I uh, uh, and I didn't really. So I was also the only one doing forensics, except law enforcement, in in Iceland at the time. So it was pretty hard to kind of figure out how to start and do what to do. Um, so I was able to to uh, get my employer to send me two cents. So I did the uh, five hundred eight class, uh, and during the five hundred eight class, you know they were teaching you know, Red River and, and all these other open source tools that are out there. Um, and, and I noticed, you know, how much of forensics at that point revolved around temporal analysis. You know, everything, you're telling a story. Like, that's basically what forensics is about. Like, you're trying to figure out what happened. And time plays a pretty big role in that. Um, and, but we didn't really have any, like, good, great tool that would do everything together, uh, everything for you. And I noticed how much, you know, during the class, I noticed how much you had to know where all the artifacts are, go ahead and manually pull them and then run this one off tool, you know, this tool for this this uh, file and this tool for this file and this tool for that file. Um, and I, I remember starting in the class writing a couple of parsers for files that they were manually looking at in, in the class. Um, and, and as soon as I started writing these parsers, I noticed how much overlap, you know, I'm always, you know, I have this all this boilerplate uh, code that I'm rewriting again and again and again, um, and this is just too much manual labor. So I started doing some of that automation, um, and, and and really started that tool just during that week. Uh, went back home, started thinking more about it, uh, and and decided to you know, if I'm going to be doing this for a living, I need a tool that I can use for my work, and I don't want to do all this manual labor on my own. So just starting you know started looking at you know. Uh, more and more blogs, um, reaching out to people, and then starting writing this tool. And that's basically where it, where it uh, grew. It grew in every case that I had to do. Like in a case where I came across an artifact that I couldn't parse, I wrote a parser for it and added it to the tool. And then it, you know, built up on, on that and eventually grew to be yeah, somewhat big. And I think you, you hit on a good point. There was a lot of there has been a lot of, have been for years, there's different tools that do different things and there's different outputs. And I think from what a lot of people coming into forensics don't realize is how much data normalization you have to do. Yes, there, there's, there's quite a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. Everything puts out in a different date format. Everything has a different, you know, even offset for the delimiters and all this stuff needs to be parsed differently. So it becomes more and more challenging to aggregate a lot of this data. And often you spend more time doing that than actually the analysis. Yeah. And so, I mean, my, my philosophy is often that like, you don't want the analysts spending all their time extracting the data. Yeah. Like you want the analysts to use what they're good at, which is the analysis 
and analysis is part of it of the data, right? Like, so you want to try to automate as much as you can about the actual extraction um, and gathering of the data, and, and have people focus on on the actual data and analyzing it. And from the log to timeline, there's now grown you know, more of the plaza, which is a little bit more robust. Can you talk a little bit about how that is now kind of developed on top of that? Yeah. So um, I think one of the so. Uh, so once I got hired by Google, uh, one of the first things I was told, you know, is that, hey, you have to rewrite this from Perl. Um, um, I, so I come from the sysadmin background, and, and Perl kind of naturally flows from the sysadmin background, where you write all these sysadmin scripts in Perl. Um, and, and the first thing they tell me, you know, Perl is not, it's not cutting it. You have to do something different. Uh, so my Nuclear project, or my new Googler project, uh, was to rewrite uh, uh, log timeline in Python. And I took the opportunity there to completely redesign it, um, try to make it more modular and, and make it more useful. Um, so PLASO, um, which stands for PLASO Lankar Sapnotle, if you didn't know that. No, I, I've heard it in the 508 class, and now hearing you say it, it doesn't make it any clearer. <laughs> <laughs> so PLASO Lankar Sapnotle um, means um, PLASO wants to collect everything. Um, so I try to, you know, so... Um, yeah, so we, we decided to, you know, rewrite in, in, in Python, and and, um, and then I started getting, like, Yakimets and, and others to help me out, uh, and, and started writing the code. And now, eventually, they've, they've, they've more or less taken over all the development right now. But, yeah, it's been it's been morphed into quite a lot more right now, and doing, uh, especially with the help of, of Yakim and, and his Libyal, right. it's become much more capable now than it used to be. Yeah, well, you have, I mean, there's been a lot of folks and people I've even had on, on the podcast before, like uh, Harlan Carvey and, and others, David Cohen, all these people that kind of develop tools of Akeem. I mean, he's been you know brought up in, uh, many times. Yeah. Um, have you found that the support that you get in the DFIR community when you're developing a tool has been, uh, been there? Like you've been able to reach out to these people. They've been very approachable. Oh, I mean, if, if you approach the people, yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I try to be also approachable to people who reach out to me. Um, no, no, no. I think, I think the forensic community uh, is a small enough community. I think everybody is pretty open up and, and helpful. Um, yeah. Yeah. Are there others that, that have kind of helped you out along the way that, that you say, they really, you've, you know, as David Cohen had said one time, you know, you kind of stand on the shoulders of giants. Everybody kind of helps each other out. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think, I mean, a lot of the, um, a lot of the people from like the sense community and, and from, from the French community have helped out over the time. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, um, Holland Carvey talked to him quite a bit and, and, you know, Corey Altide and, and you can see Rob Lee and, and. A lot of the people from the sense community have also been helping out a lot. Did you, and if I recall from the, if I get my timeline correct, that Rob had asked you to actually uh, submit the log of timeline as part of your GX gold paper? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, that came about. I mean, we, as a, like, I, I started writing log timeline when I got back home, and um, I remember Rob reaching out to me and telling me, hey, you should be doing a gold paper. Um, and, and we started talking about it, and he suggested, why don't you do log timeline as a gold paper? And you know, I was I was developing it anyway, so why not? Um, it would it would uh, help me uh, focus a little bit more of my work towards do you know getting it ready and, and writing a paper about it. So yeah, it, it, that kind of came out after discussion with Rob Lee and and trying to do that more. Now you, I'm sure a lot of other people you say much must approach you in the community, ask for advice, things. Do you think, you know, one of the things I've heard a lot of people say is, you know, what else is there left to look at? Are there other things to look at, you know, when, when that there's just 
different things to do research on or the things you say, God, if I only had more time, oh, I could I'm, put on. I, there, there are endless stuff, right? Like there's always something that is coming out new and, and there's endless stuff to look at new more. Um, I mean, both the, the current artifacts that we're looking at are always constantly evolving. Um, new tools coming out, um, new artifacts. So there's always something new. But it's also not just, you know, the new artifacts. It's also about the post-processing. Like it's more about um, with, with more data comes more data, right? Um, and you can't anymore just manually sift through everything. You have to have some way of figuring out where the needles are. Um, so, yeah, so there's, there's a lot more, especially on the analysis section, uh, I think that can be done more or, or should be done more on. And a lot of that, you know, we've certainly seen the buzzwords been the last couple of years around machine learning and AI. Do you see a lot of that playing into that, or are they just hype at this point? I, I, I mean, I, I think there are potentials there. Um, the, one of the problems with, with AI and, and machine learning is that um, it, it's really designed for very, very big data sets, right? And even if you have like a plus or a timeline, which is maybe 5 million events, it's not really a big data set. Like you need a lot better data set to actually train the models. Um, and they're also really good at, at learning, you know, like if they see 20 pictures of dogs, they will be identify pictures of dogs in the, in the, in the you know, future. But the problem with, with a lot of the stuff that we're doing is that we're doing outlier detection. Like we're figuring out that one little needle. Um, and sometimes there's just too few of the needles for the machine to learn from the data set. Um, so I think they might be uh, often more applicable in, in getting rid of a lot of the data, right? Like data reduction, um, identifying this is normal system behavior. We should just get rid of that, and you can focus on the, what's left. Um, but I think there's definitely potential, but we're not. I don't think we are there yet with in terms of that. Now, with I'm certainly as you say, if you've had a system admin background, we've seen a large decentralization of things like directory services. Uh, people moving mail services to the cloud. Have you found that with less of an on-premise kind of presence and the gathering of a lot of information, logs, and forensic artifacts, that your jobs become more difficult when you have kind of the infrastructure extending so much further to the endpoints now? No, so I think it's, it's, it's just different. Like, yeah, I mean, back in, the, back in the days, you could just take the endpoint and you had everything you needed. Um, now you have to really think outside of the box. Um, I think... Um, in many ways, it, it makes your life easier as long as you think ahead of time and you have sufficient backend logs. Like a lot of the, the job we do now is much more looking at logs from generated by the systems rather than looking at the endpoint itself, um, because those are the actual you know source of truth. But you have to have access to these logs and you have to think about it ahead of time to make sure that you have both the access and you have the processing and, and parsing of these logs. Um, so as I you know, if you if you look at my job right now, you look at um, the vast majority of the time, I'm actually looking at server-side logs rather than going on disk and, and fetching artifacts. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it changes. And and cloud is obviously changing a lot of things. And, and you know, same with, um, you know, mobile devices and, you know, all these other devices that you're using now to access your data. Um, you can't just go ahead and pull every phone that you see and, and, and image it. Like, you have to think about how you investigate, because the, the phone has the same access to the data as your Windows machine or Linux desktop. Right now you have to think about a um, lot more data, a uh, lot more endpoints that you have to think about that you don't have the same access to, you don't have the same ability to look at. So you kind of have to focus your attention on, on the server side and the things that you can control 
um, and, and try to make use of that. And with that, obviously, you said before, you know, <clears throat> with this probably generates a lot more alerts, a lot more data. What are some of the tools that you're either thinking of or developing or even using now to try to parse through that volume of log data? Yeah, so, I mean, um, obviously, we, we're doing a lot of open source work at Google, um, and TimeSketch being one of them. Um, and, and I think we're putting a lot of efforts in trying to get that into uh, a tool that we can use more, um, both to, like, visualize some of the data and also do some sort of, like, graph analysis or... or uh, or better searches through big data sets that we can pull out these these lines from. Um, but I mean, is it like a lot of the, a lot of this stuff is also on autom- on automation, um, trying to codify what the analyst would be doing, some sort of in some sort of way, some sort of fashion, uh, and try to automate as much as you can of it, so that you're surfacing less up to the analyst, but the stuff that you surface to the analyst is more meaningful and in and even enriched with context, so you don't just get you know hey this. IP address, reach out to this IP address. You get, you know, the context of which machine, which operating system, which um, process on the machine, to reach out to it. You get a lot more context surrounding the alert so that you can take more meaningful decisions. So, so those things kind of stand out a little bit more. So stand out a little bit more and then you have more context so you can look at the alert um, and you can you know, better adjust to better, um, like immediately spot, you know, this is fine or, or I need to dig deeper into this or I need more... And with that, are you starting to do any of the visualization tools? I see a lot of that you know, stuff being built out, even like Kibana and a lot of these types of different visual analytics tools. Yeah, I'm, I don't know if you've seen the tools that I write. They're all command line because I suck at UI. <laughs> um, I, I leave that to other people. Uh, but that's, like, that's what Johan uh, is trying to do with TimeSketch. He's trying to, to build that UI, try to build some more visualization on top of it. Um, because I'm, I'm terrible at it. I, I like it when it works, but I'm terrible at creating it. <laughs> yeah, it seems like there, there could be a lot of it, but it's, it's definitely, there's two, there's two points. You have the, the UI and user experience people that can do the visual, but it's, it's, there's always been, I think, that separation between the brain of, of how people yeah. that do that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I prefer grep and lesson. Yeah. And that I, kind of stuff. I, I'm always having fights with my, my, my command line people about that. I'm like, can you please put this, put this in a pivot table in Excel, then I'll take a look at it. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I operate. Now, I also know Google's had uh, some other tools, and I don't know if they're still in development reviews, but like the GRR and the rapid response tool. Yep. Is that something that's still kind of an active project? Oh, that's, that's an active project. We're still actively working on that, yeah. yeah. So I guess uh, kind of walk people through that a little bit. Like, what does a tool like that do? I mean, that's just an, uh, uh, that's an endpoint agent um, that works on, on, on Windows and Linux and Macs, and, and that can be used for accessing files. Um, so you'll have quick access to files. You can... Do some rudimentary memory forensics there. It's basically an endpoint agent for you to pull data from, right? You can pull certain artifacts. Uh, we have the artifact library integrated into it, so you can say, "Hey, give me browser history," and it will know the location of the browser history. Um, you can do it to run, you know, hunts across the, the fleet. You're saying you have an indicator of compromise, so you have an IOC, and you can look at it and say, "Hey, I had this indicator. It was for Linux machines, or it was for you know these kind of machines." has this artifact, and then you can run it across your fleet and check whether there are any other machines that are, have these indicators on. So it's a way of, of quickly identifying indicators in the fleet and pulling files. And, and So it sounds similar to, you know, in a kind of similar mind, investigative mindset where, where we're seeing it graduate from this idea of automating a certain amount, reducing data sets, and looking for those needles in the haystack, but instead of on one machine, across hundreds, if not yeah. thousands. Yeah, yeah. 
very cool. <laughs> and so, I, yeah, I think I've seen that and some of the other. So I think that's that's you know we're seeing again with this this kind of decentralized model, like where you have more and more of these endpoints have so much kind of rich data, and it's really coming down to what users do and what they click on. Um, are you also seeing more, you know, in, in memory forensics has still been something that's been developing for a while. Is that something that you focus on as well? Um, I, I mean, memory forensics is, is definitely something that's uh, both very important, but also tricky. Yeah. It's a constantly evolving field, and if you don't have somebody that's actively maintaining it and, and, and working on it, it starts to break pretty quickly. Um, so, yeah, we, I mean, we, we would love to have more focus there. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it's a tricky field, but, but necessary nonetheless, right? Yeah. Cause every, it seems like every version of an operating system just shifts something a little just bit, just a little bit, <laughs> just, just enough to make your tool break. That's exactly right. Yeah, exactly. Now with this, it sounds like you also have a, you know, a more of a responsibility as a manager too. You have a team. Yeah. So, um, I've, what is it now? I've got maybe... Three or four years ago, that I moved into to the the wonderful world of management, uh, and and been shiftly uh, shifting less and less from a technical role to more and more management. Um, so I haven't actually coded in, in block timeline for I don't know two years, maybe a year or two years. Completely left that off to to Joachim and, and Daniel White uh, and others. Um, but yeah, I've been moving more to management, and now I'm I'm managing the forensics team and the part of the incident management team here in the US. How so? You certainly mentioned that so you're doing much less hands-on keyboard stuff. What would you say is it? Is it almost none, or is it a good portion? Well, I mean, uh, I mean it, it fluctuates, right? Um, it, lately, I don't know. Last year or so, it's been less and less. Uh, but I typically done. I've been also on call typically and do every now and then just to keep my skills a little bit um, not completely out of date. <laughs> um, but yeah, so no, no it, it's been moving more and more into management and trying to build up the team and. and as, as you kind of build and look for talent, what are some of the things that you look for in an analyst as you try to hire or develop them? Um, we, typically, um, we typically try to look for people that want to really know, like have the hunger to understand what's happening, like at a deeper level. We don't really want people that just know a tool and just know where to push which button and, and where this feature lies in the tool. They want to know really underlying what, you know, how does NTFS work or how does, you know, EXT3 work? Uh, we want people that actually have a little bit deeper knowledge and, and wanting to know more, like people that actually want to go really deep and figure out. Um, but we also have a lot of emphasis. I mean, we are a software engineering company um, and, and we do develop a lot of open source tools. So we want to have people that can code as well. Um, and, and that's sometimes been tricky to find people that can both code and do forensics, because um, oftentimes you find people that can do either one of those. Right. Right. Um, so it makes it a little bit sometimes tricky to, to, to hire people. And, so and you mentioned it before, certainly Python seems to be kind of the flavor of choice of scripting and coding languages. Is that the thing that you would kind of recommend people get a little bit more in-depth in? Um, at least in the, in the forensic tooling department, we, I mean, Python has been pretty popular. Um, Go is starting to catch on a little bit as well, uh, but Python is certainly is at least a very good, you know, to get your feet wet. Yeah, yeah speaking of Go, yeah, there was a, there's a great tool out there, and I don't know if a lot of people know of, but it's called Go Fish that's built on, you know, Go for fishing, and I think there's more and more of these. There yeah, are more and more coming in yeah, and, and just, Go, right? So. 
yeah, I think it kind of makes it a little bit more, you know, that that's great when it's more accessible. We can get more of these tools and try to shore up some of the gaps of some of the areas that uh, we need further research or development on. Yeah. Are in, a, in kind of along that line, are there spe- are there specific kind of artifacts or different things that you would you know want to see um, have more research done to have further you know development? I mean, most of the. Uh, research and, and is on, on typically on the Windows platform because that's what people see the most. Um, for us, we are, we have, we're much more Mac and, and Linux shop. Um, so I would like to see more people focusing on those artifacts. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's also, I mean, you see uh, like mobile platforms and the other platforms coming up as well that um, some of us have uh, a serious lack of tooling available. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think there are plenty of opportunities to, to contribute and, and, and to Find new things. I don't mm-hmm. think there's a lack of that. Yeah, there, there's always a new, a new, uh, a new area to research. But I guess maybe within that, that kind of, you know, certainly seeing more and more Macs. Are there, you know, there's always been that concern. People say, oh well, you know, Macs and Linux are, are not so prone to malware, you know, as, as much as Windows. But I, I think that we certainly see that as not necessarily true. <laughs> no, that's not necessarily true. Yeah, so we're starting to see more. Are in with within that? Are you seeing? Are you doing more malware research yourself, or doing anything around that as far as you know what you see or get on a regular uh, basis? I haven't been doing any or much malware research myself for the last I don't know how many years now, uh, because we have such an excellent reverse engineering team uh, available to us right next, <laughs> next right next office. So we kind of just send things over there. Um, so no, yeah, I haven't yeah. been doing that. Yeah, you're lucky when you have when you have yeah. you know, that that team. That <laughs> I, I, I had to do it more back in the day when I when I was a one man shop. Yeah. <laughs> But but again, there, there's still there's plenty of research to be done there. You know, there's there's plenty of research to be done there. Yes, for sure. And with I guess your day to day job, I mean, are you still seeing that as a common uh, attack vector? I mean, at least from from what I'm seeing, you know, from day to day stuff is, you know, it's a phishing email with you know payloaded uh, attachments or links that are in it. I mean, that's still the common threat attack that you see. I mean, that's a, that's always the classic one, right? Um, why stop it if it still works? Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, we see a lot of a lot of different ways, but I mean, that that's still very very common common way of getting in. Yeah. And so that kind of comes into that that user behavior aspect of trying to change change the user's behavior. You know, in a in a you know, particularly as we sit here in Silicon Valley and you work for a big software engineering company, does that become more of a challenge with inside your organization? Is to change an engineer's behavior because they sometimes, at least in my experience, have felt well, I already got, I already know everything, so. <laughs> I mean, it, it's hard. I mean, you can do um, these training sessions. Um, they typically work for a day or two until they forget all about it. Um, I mean, you can see you do these training sessions over and over again, but you can see that they keep always falling for it. You get new people starting in. You get people that forget about the training or, you know, you're just not really thinking when you're clicking the email. Um, so I think a lot of the... A lot of the um, uh, the, the things that we've been trying to do as well is to try to make both reporting easy, right? And we try to um, educate our users of how they report security incidents to us or, or threats or, or something that they fear suspicious and make it as easy as possible. Um, and then we try to be accommodating on the other end uh, of thanking people for the report, even though they're pretty ludicrous, right? Um, so we try to... Um, and foster a, a culture of, of, of self-reporting mm-hmm. as well. And I think that's also, um, we can see that actually working quite a bit sometimes. 
Are you seeing that through, are, are there specific metrics that you kind of you measure on that to see how, how effective it can be? Sure. <laughs> it's always a challenge, but yeah, it's, it's, it's like, how do you, how do you track user behavior? It's a challenge. Yeah. yeah. Sure. <laughs> well, they click less. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> One always helps. Um, you know, certainly it's, so, you know, we've talked a little bit about the, um, teaching you've received or classes, do you, have you stepped into that role? And I think I, I'm already kind of baiting this question that they have, but have done some teaching yourself and, and different work, you know, whether internally or with other organizations? Yeah. I mean, I've tried to do that. Um, I haven't been as, as active lately, but I mean, I've been more focused inwards right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do a lot of like, uh, training inside the company and, and uh, like mentoring with people and, and try to train there up. Um, I used to do a lot more training. I worked at like workshops and, and, and training outside. And I think I'm going to be probably trying to do more of that now uh, again. Uh, but I think that's a, that's a very important part of, of your role because you have to, because this is, like, this is a small community and you need to train more people up because, you know, there's not enough people in the field right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's, it's pretty important that you try to uh, teach people up. And yeah, so that's definitely something that um, I want to focus on more in the future. But I've been trying to do it more internally, mm-hmm. internally lately. Right, so. Yeah, in in I mean, obviously Google has a great mentorship structure. <laughs> so I've tried to steal from my own thing with the whole uh, OKRs and <laughs> things like yeah. that. But it, it's 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 interesting to to try to get those people um, from not burning out too, because you also want to make sure they're they're constantly staying fresh, but also not feeling overwhelmed. So how do you kind of balance that? Where you say, hey, you got to learn something new, but hey, we have this huge workload at the same point. Um, well, we, we, we try to balancing it with we're trying to give people, um, you know, so that they can divide their work between operational work and then project work, right? Where we, we have the goal of trying you have, where we say 40, 40, 20, you, you spend 40% of your time operationally, and then 40% you, on project time, uh, and then 20% is typically overhead or something else. Um, but um, sometimes it's aspirational, sometimes it's, it's what actually happens, depending on, on, on you know, fluctuation in time and, and how much comes in. But we try to uh, be very, very open and we try to be uh, honest about trying to give people enough, rather hire more people and, and to, to have people have time to do project work and work on something that they, they're really interested in um, and, and just to, to make sure that they don't burn out. I mean, it, it is a big risk, right? Like you see that all the time happening. So I think the goal is always to try to both have enough interesting project and enough interesting operational work for people to do so they still want to keep coming to work. Uh, but you also have to, to listen to people and, and ask them, you know, what do you really want to do? What is it that you really want to work on? And then you try to give them opportunity and time to do that. And give them the tools. And give them the tools to yeah. do that, right? That's a big thing that for, right. for employee retention, I think, is giving them um, the ability to kind of spread out do they want, but make sure they have the resources to do it. Yeah. Um, and that's why, like I said, like we have a pretty big team of software engineers in the company, so we try to also pair people up with, with you know, if you need resources and you, you, I don't know enough in Go, like you find somebody that's really good at it and you pair them up with them and uh, have them help each other out. Right? Awesome. Well, Kristen, where, where can people find you online? I know you have a, a quite a unique uh, Twitter handle. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, um, my Twitter handle, I'm, I'm very inactive on Twitter. Uh, Still one of the best Twitter handles on yeah, the community. Yeah, so it's, so I'm, um, I'm Killer Dwarf. Um, it came from um, um, a presentation I did at the Sense DFIR Summit many years ago back. Um, I used to do take some 
photos of, of my kids' toys and use them in my presentations um, instead of stealing pictures from online. And I took this picture of, uh, of a dwarf sitting next to somebody's toy with a fake blood on it. Um, and, and I called it, you know, there was the uh, log timeline, kill dwarf version edition. So, and right at that time, I, I created my Twitter account. So I used that handle. Uh, yeah, so you can reach out to me there in the rare occasion that I open up Twitter. Otherwise, email. Um, so it's uh, just Kristen at lovetimeline.net. Um, yeah, or through other various means, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll be yeah. sure to put all that stuff uh, on, the, on the show notes and LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, but that's great. I appreciate you taking the time today. Yeah, thank you. That was great. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.